I've never seen so many eyes in my life. <laughs> used to seeing the back of your heads. Thursday I went to work, and it was one of those days where I just wasn't, wasn't feeling it. You know, I just wasn't feeling too spiritual at all. But yet at the same time, you know, as we sang this morning, just the whole thing of uh, he's a good, good father. And that uh, he's with us, and he's for us and stuff. So here I am at work, you know, not really feeling too spiritual. And this girl walks in that uh, works for us, and uh, arm is in a sling. And uh, I'm thinking... She's not going to be able to do much and uh, stuff like that. So they actually brought her back to me to, to teach her how to do this very, very simple job. And I thought, okay, that, that would be okay. And uh, so they bring her back, and as soon as she gets in front of me, the compassion of God just comes over me. And I thought, oh, God's about ready to do something. And I'm not sure right now what's going to happen. And uh, so uh, I showed her what needs to happen and stuff. And I walked away because I thought, if God's about ready to do something, i got to get ready. So I walked away, had a quick prayer, and I said, you know, God, whatever you want to do, I'm in, whatever it is. And then walked back over to see how she was doing and stuff. And I thought, I'm just going to sit down and just have a little talk with her. So we're talking and stuff. And so I just started talking about just the whole thing of going to this class of church, learning how to pray for people and things of that nature or so then I just told a couple of God stories of just seeing God heal people and stuff. I said, would it be okay if I pray for you? And she goes, anything. And she says, I've had this pain for years in my shoulder. I've had acupuncture. I've taken pills. I've done everything. You know, I just don't know what else to do. If this will help, I'll do it. And uh, so I said, it's not going to be weird at all. I'll just lay my hand lightly on your shoulder. I'll say a very short, very simple prayer. We'll just ask God to touch you. She goes, okay. So we got real close together. I laid my hand on her shoulder. I prayed. I said, so what do you think? She goes, well. And then she jumps up, and she becomes a mad woman. I got two good eyes. <laughs> the other employees at work look back here, and they start laughing. And when one of them says, I knew it. I knew he was back here praying for her. <laughs> it's just so good. It's just so good and so just amazing you know even when you don't feel like god's there with you you know he is amen all right you can be seated yeah let's pray let's pray god thank you for good news thank you that the kingdom has come it's among us we're living in the midst of it and the kingdom is breaking out so we thank you for that healing and the way that the compassion of jesus touched that woman and now we ask lord that you touch the very depths of her soul and bring her permanent healing, body, soul, and spirit. We just thank you that you are in our midst and ask that while we're here and we're gazing upon you, that the scriptures this morning would pierce our hearts, that the Holy Spirit who inspired them would uh, bring revelation and illumination this morning. And God, that we would be changed to be more like Jesus. Amen. I want to read the uh, same scripture that we read last week from Daniel chapter 1. So this is Daniel uh, chapter 1, 1 to 7. We will make it a few more verses, um, but I really want to um, stay in this first chapter of Daniel this morning. So Daniel chapter 1. During the third year of King Joachim's reign in Judah, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem and besieged it. 
the Lord gave him victory over King Jehoiakim of Judah and permitted him to take some of the sacred objects from the temple of God. So Nebuchadnezzar, bad guy, took them back to the land of Babylonia and placed them in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, his chief of staff, to bring to the palace some of the young men of Judah's royal family and other noble families who'd been brought to Babylon as captives. Select only strong, healthy, and good-looking young men, he said. Make sure they're well-versed in every branch of learning, are gifted with knowledge and good judgment, and are suited to serve in the royal palace. Train these young men in the language and literature of Babylon. The king assigned them a daily ration of food and wine from his own kitchens. They were to be trained for three years, and then they would enter the royal service. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah were four of the young men chosen, all from the tribe of Judah. So I I talked about God's sovereignty last week in the choice of these men and maybe challenged you a little bit to see what is God doing in the midst of what might be a difficult calling or circumstance in your life. This morning, I want to focus on the fact that uh, Daniel and his friends, I can't remember all the names and I don't want to mess them up, Daniel and his pals, um, were in the midst of a foreign pagan culture. They were there assigned by God to their place. But then they were assaulted with cultural formation, right? That's what happened to Daniel and his pals. And Daniel and his friends uh, had to, to figure out at which point do we stand out as different? At, at what point in all this training are, are, do we need to, to show these uh, foreign powers that were different. And um, I think it's such a perfect allegory or analogy of what we're living in right now. If you belong to Jesus, it means you've been born again. You've been born into another kingdom. The value system of the kingdom of God is different than the value system of this earth, right? Our perspective as believers is different. The way we think and talk and communicate and process and relate and maybe even sometimes the way we emote is different than the the culture around us. I need to, uh, uh, to say boldly up front, culture is not evil or good. Okay, culture is inanimate. You could disagree with me. That's fine. You're free to be wrong if you want. No problem. Little joke there. Culture is not evil, right? Jesus was born into a culture and a time and a people and spoke a language. You know, Jesus didn't necessarily condemn. He didn't condemn the culture he was living in. What he did was he brought the culture of heaven to have a transformational effect on the culture he was born into. He, he was born into a culture and celebrated so much about that. If we, as uh, born-again believers, born from the kingdom of God, living in this strange place, this strange culture, um, if we're going to follow Jesus, we're going to be different. It doesn't mean we have to slam the culture. It just means we've got to understand the culture. We get to be a part the way that Jesus was a part of the culture he was in. But it means that sometimes, sometimes we'll have to stand out. We'll have to resolve in our hearts to be different. And Daniel and his friends uh, came in verse 8 to this place of resolution where they had to realize that they were going to be different. The culture 
And the enemy, who sometimes uses it, that's Satan, will try to squeeze us into its mold, right? We could do three hours of testimonies about ways that the culture and the enemy, Satan, who sometimes uses the culture, has tried to squeeze you into its mold, to train you, to give you the literature and the language and the dress and the food and the drink of this culture. And if we're born again from heaven and living on this earth as representatives of Jesus, we're going to be different. We're going to look different. We're going to act different. It's individually up to us as we are inspired by the Holy Spirit to determine what that difference looks like because it's different for each and every one of us. I just want to remind you that it's not the job of believers to judge the culture it's the job of believers to live in the midst of it and bring another cultural option to the to the table and beware i i i I wrote that down i thought that's good yeah let's don't judge the culture and then i felt like i needed to say to myself and to anyone else who might be like me and don't judge the judgers of culture because sometimes i can go so far on the other side and say stop judging the culture you know what you're bad and I realize I've fallen into the same thing. You know, we're, we're, not, we're not here to, uh, to make a judgment on the culture. We're here, inspired, empowered by the Holy Spirit of God to show the culture of heaven. And so when Paul writes, what does love look like? You know, love, what's the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. When we see those things in the culture... Praise God. When we don't see those things in the culture, let's show the culture those things. You know what I'm saying? Okay. There is a time, though, for us living in this culture where we, like Daniel, have to stand out, have to resolve that we'll be different. So Daniel 1.8, they've just, uh, you know, they've been, these 14, 15-year-olds have been pulled into this foreign culture. They're getting language learning. They're going to the university. They're probably getting new clothes. They've gotten new names. They're getting new jobs. And the scripture tells us Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. So all these things are coming at Daniel and he's being trained to be like a Babylonian in all of these different ways. What I find interesting is that Daniel just chooses one way to stand out. Daniel doesn't say, no way I'm speaking that language. He learns the language. Daniel doesn't say, no way I'm wearing those clothes. He wears those clothes. Daniel doesn't say, no way I'm working for a pagan king. He works for a pagan king. Never makes a deal about it. You know what's fascinating? The king changes their names. And he doesn't beef about it. Like, isn't that a little bit personal? Like, you can do all sorts of stuff. But when you just start saying, I can't use my own name, doesn't that feel a little bit like, Hold on a second. The, the names of Daniel and all his friends were Hebrew names, and they all had relationship to their worship of God, the one true God. When their names were changed, each of the names they were given in Babylonian uh, referred to some sort of worship to another God. So it's like they said to Daniel, we will no, no, no longer call you who is like our God, the one true God. We will now call you some foreign God's name. And Daniel and his friends don't make a beef about that. Why? 
And I, I mean, I prayed about it. I read some things about it. I think Daniel and his friends realized that you can, you can call me any name you want. You don't get to tell me who I am. They knew who they were and they knew whose they were. They knew that they belonged to the one true God. God had planted them there in that pagan, pagan place. And they didn't have to get all huffy puffy about the names they were called. Because only the one who created you can really give you your identity. Right? No foreign God, no foreign power, no foreign culture gets to tell us who we are. I think it's instructive for Christians. We can go, you know, I don't call me whatever you want to call me. You don't tell me who I am. We get our identity from a good, good father. And our father tells us who we are. You know, in, uh, I won't go into any details, but my name, the Randy, is a really bad name in other parts of the world. <laughs> if you go up to someone from the United Kingdom and say, I'm Randy, they'll slap you in the face. I'll let you do your own Google searches, okay? Jane and I... Jane and I spent 10 days in England, and I had to introduce myself as Randy all over the place, all right? Here's the point. No one gets to tell me who I am. God tells me who I am, right? And so Daniel and his pals, they don't make any big deal about the names and all that stuff. They make a big deal about the food. Now, I am not going to launch into a big exposition of the you know, Hebrew uh, eating patterns. I don't think it's about the food. I think Daniel and his friends realized that there was a point in their enculturation, their placement in this pagan society, there was a point at which something external all of a sudden was about to become internal. And they, and they said, wait a minute, hold, hold on. At this point, you can change everything on the outside, but I cannot do something that would defile me. I can't take something that I know is wrong before God in my my understanding of God, in my relationship with God, I can't take something in that would cause this vessel to become impure. It's like Daniel and his friends saying, you know, you can say anything you want about the outside, but my internal integrity will not be touched. And so Daniel makes this resolution. It's a strong word. It's not like, I think I'll see if I can get out of this, or I'll scoot it under the table, or hide it behind the wall, or No, he makes a resolution. When something comes to him that will defile him, the inside, he says, no, I got to stand out here. Give me a job, give me a name, give me a school, anything. But I will not defile myself with that food. It's like Daniel realized this is the one place I've got to stand out. Christians, believers, friends, born again people. There, there is a place in our lives where we'll have to resolve to stand out. I mean, it is so good. We like to quote the Apostle Paul, I'll be all things to all people so that by some means we can reach, save some. Paul himself, someone pointed out to me after verse, first, uh, first verse, Paul's name was Saul, named after the first king, right? Paul changes his name to a Gentile name to appeal to people. He doesn't care what you call him. He knows who he is, right? But there is a time when we have to stand out, when we have to say, wait a minute, this is where I draw the line, where you start messing with my internal integrity. There is a point, and it's different for each one of us, where we have to realize, at this point, I've got to stand out and be different. For them, it was the food. 
for them, they, they, had to, they had to say something there. They had to say, at this point, we violate our conscience. The Lord will never ask you to violate your conscience. He's put his spirit within you. And the Romans tells us that the spirit within us is jealous for God, jealous for holiness, jealous for purity, right? So God's not going to call you to go against your conscience. There are just the places, places where we've got to stand up and say, I'm going to be different here. Romans 14.5, Paul is speaking to the Romans. I mean, a, a, a called out people in a pagan society to these Christians and saying, listen, there's all sorts of things about should we eat food that's, that's you know, been um, sacrificed to idols? Should we not eat food? How do we work all this? And Paul in the end says, here's the bottom line. Let everyone be fully persuaded in his own mind. Romans 14.5. The point is, we don't have one eternal legislation that governs all of us, except for the law of love. That's the new law of Jesus that governs us. So Paul gives freedom. Listen, hear from the Holy Spirit. For some of us, we can walk into a neighborhood party, have a glass of wine with the rest of our friends for an hour or so, and not be defiled. For others, we will be defiled. It's not about the alcohol. It's about the heart, right? Some of us can go to this movie and not be defiled. Others can't. Some of us can watch TV and not be defiled. Others of us can't. Some of us can listen to this music. You get where I'm going, what I'm saying. It's between us and the Lord to determine at what point, God, in my integrity, do I cross over the line do I impinge on my own conscience given to me by God and there I'm walking in defilement? We don't get to judge other people who have different places than we do. We get to walk out in integrity, the calling of God on our lives in purity and let the world deal with it. It's interesting here, even when, even when um, Daniel says, okay, you know, language, you know, literature, work, job, name, all that stuff, fine. He says, this thing about the food we can't do. Even then, he doesn't make a big hairy deal about it. You don't see Daniel saying, that's it. And then Daniel stood up and made a speech. I have never in all my life been so. He doesn't do any of that. Daniel makes a deal. That's, that's what it says Daniel does. Daniel, later on in the verse, which I won't read now, you can read it, Daniel 1. Daniel just makes a deal. He goes to the to person in charge of him and says, hey, listen, this whole thing about eating the food, we can't do that. But that would cross our line of integrity. If, if you want all that we have to bring, you can't make us cross our own line of integrity. You will miss out. And so instead of making a big, hairy deal, he makes a small deal. He says, how about this? Give them the food. Give us vegetables and water. Vegans? Part-time vegans? Yes, yeah. He says, let's just make a deal. You know, you, you give us this, uh, give us the vegetables and water, and we'll just see how it works out. What is he doing? One, he's not making a big deal out of something that doesn't made, had to be a big deal. Secondly, he's putting God to the test. I don't mean in an unbiblical way, but I mean he's really putting God on the line. God gave him the integrity. God gave him the the wherewithal to stand, I will not defile myself this way. And then he lets God get, get him out of it. He puts someone else's safety on the line. 
what would happen to the Babylonian, you know, caretaker guy if all of a sudden these, uh, these Israelites were all emaciated? He's busted, right? It's called death. And so Daniel has the courage to say, one, I won't cross the line of my integrity. I have to stand out here. God is my witness. I can't do it. Two, to not make a big deal of it, but just use his wisdom and make, you know, a a deal about what they'll eat and what they won't. And three, he actually brings other people in on it. He is not afraid to be completely who he is in a pagan culture and let the rest of the world deal with it. You know, sometimes as believers, we'll have to stand up for something. And when we stand up for that, it has impact on other people. You make a declaration for the Lord, your, your family might pay for it. Your, others that your friends might pay for it. That is a part of the Christian reality. Jesus stood up and said, I'm the son of God. His friends paid for it. Right? And we get no less as followers of Jesus. I want to read this. It's a little bit of a lengthy quote. I tried to cut it down and just give a synopsis. I couldn't. It's just too good. So I, I just want to read this. This is from... Um, Russell Moore, and then a little bit from Stephen Graybill, talking about what it means to live as a, as a foreigner in the land. You know, 1 Peter 2.11 says, we're, we're aliens, we're foreigners, we're exiles, because our citizenship is in heaven. We walk on this earth like, like exiles, like, you know, temporary residents of another realm. This is what Russell Moore says. The scriptures call on all Christians everywhere to be strangers and exiles in whatever culture we inhabit. This doesn't mean a lack of engagement. Exile didn't mean that for Old Testament Israel, see Joseph in Egypt or Daniel in Babylon, for parts of their sojourns there. And it certainly doesn't mean that for the church. Right after speaking of the church as exiles in 1 Peter 2, Peter instructs the church on how to act among the Gentiles. He says, you're strange and you're weird, but now here's how you act towards those in your culture. Peter instructs the church on how to respond to human institutions, including political institutions. The kind of exiles we are to be is not a bitter, resentful people hearkening back to better days when we had more power and influence. We are to be instead those who know that the culture around us, whatever culture that is, is temporary. I just want to repeat that. We are to be instead those who know that the culture around us, whatever culture that is, is temporary. We are to pattern our lives not after nostalgia for the past, but hope for the future. He's saying we are not called to just, you know, hearken back to that time when, oh, remember when everyone knew the Ten Commandments and remember when, I mean, this is how we were formed. That's all good. I'm not disparaging the the Christian foundation of our nation. Praise God for it. It's not our current reality. And if we just spend our time hearkening back to that and is sort of looking for that, that glorious time in the past, we will miss our opportunity to represent the kingdom right now and right here in this culture. This means, Russell Moore says, a discontent. We pray for the kingdom to come, Matthew 6. We groan with the creation around us for the end of the wreckage of the curse, Romans chapter 8. The political and cultural climate of America does not make us exiles. 
It can, however, remind us that we are exiles and strangers as our ancestors were. American Christians can wake up from the hypnosis of an illusory Christian America. Anyone getting angry? A little bit angry? I'm good. And learn to seek first the kingdom of God. We can stop counting on the culture to do pre-evangelism and moral catechesis. That is, you know, we've got to stop depending on the culture around us to get people prepared to hear the truth of Jesus. We used to be able to do that. We used to be able to say, you know, just like that show you watch at 8 o'clock on Tuesday night with your family around the telly. That's just how Jesus is. We can't do that anymore. And we can no longer count on the culture, public school or whatever, to, pre- to prepare the, the, the people around us to hear what's underneath, I mean, the, the essential truth of our morality. We can't expect that the culture will get people, get people ready to hear about Jesus. We have to do that work. We have to be the cultural influences. We have to be the courageous presence in the midst of the places God's called us, not with condemnation in preaching, but the way Jesus did it, compassion. The way David did it. That David, King David too, but that David, he didn't walk in with an exposition of the healing power of Jesus and how your sickness is probably from sin. (laughs) Or demons, which could be true. What did he do? He said, hey, I know God and he loves you. And I'd just like him to have a chance to show you his love. And quietly, he touches her. Who does the yelling? The one who got healed. Not the healer. You ever heard David yell? I mean, Delana probably David yelled one time maybe in his life. Once or twice. Yeah. No, 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 no. The person who, heals, who, the person who yelled is the one who got healed. She's the one who says, oh my gosh, heaven has invaded earth in my body. And then everybody knows about it. Stephen Graville, God's people have always been and are now living in a permanent state of in-between. The prophet Jeremiah gives us the essence of living faithfully in this state to seek the shalom of the city where I've sent you into exile. That's the, that's the Old Testament prophet, as weird as they were, right? It says, no, you're going to live as exiles in this culture, as representatives of Jesus in this culture. How how are we going to do that? We're going to seek the shalom, the peace, the well-being of the place to which he's called us. We're going to seek the shalom of downtown Indianapolis. We're going to seek the shalom of Fishers. We're going to seek the shalom of Zionsville or Cicero or Greenfield. We're going to seek the shalom of Texas if God calls us down there. Or Florida as we just prayed for someone going off to Florida for a few months after the first service. That's how we live in exile, to seek the shalom, the peace of God to come down in the midst of where he sent us. That's what Daniel and his friends did. They made a resolution. Hey, we're not going to defile ourselves and walk out of integrity, but we don't need to make a big hairy deal about it. We're just going to live as faithful representatives of God's presence in the midst of the place he's called us. You cannot blend in. You cannot blend in. You don't need necessarily to to wear an eight-foot cross to let everyone know that you're a believer in Jesus. But honestly, you might need to wear a cross. How has God called you to stand out in a way that, that that shows integrity but shows respect for the people around you? 
How are you supposed to stand out? I don't know. If, if the people in the vineyard could handle it, I myself would wear a clerical collar. I would love that. You're thinking, weirdo alert. <laughs> Here's why I would love that. I love to tell people I'm a pastor. I work any way I can in, this, in a conversation to get around to the fact that I'm a pastor. Not so I have a platform from which to proclaim the gospel, but so that I have a seat from which to hear their story. It happens all the time. I'll say, oh, that's funny because I'm a pastor. I'll just do it like that. You know, and they'll say, oh, you're a pastor? I went to church and this happened to me. I had this bad experience. I really needed to get back to church. I have this question about God. Like, why would I not want that? If I could just wear a collar. <laughs> Permission to wear a collar? No. no. <laughs> Darn. No. I almost wore one for this message. I'm just warning you there. What is it that God's given you that it is a place where you can, in a, in a sensitive, loving way, stand out? There may be a place where God's called you to stand out because you can't defile yourself. And then there may be a place where you just have an opportunity to let people know, hey, in case you didn't know I was different, I'm different. I'm an exile. I'm a stranger. I'm a sojourner on this earth. I'm an alien. Romans 12, 1 and 2, in the message paraphrase, Eugene Peterson puts it like this. Skip ahead about 12 slides. With eyes wide open to the mercies of God, I beg you, my brothers, as an act of intelligent worship, to give him your bodies as a living sacrifice, consecrated to him and acceptable by him. Don't let the world around you squeeze you into its own mold. But let God remold your minds from within so that you may prove in practice that the plan of God for you is good, meets all his demands, and moves towards the goal of, of maturity, true maturity. Paul's just saying, like, hey, we're weirdos. We're aliens. We're strangers. We're sojourners. We can't be ashamed of that. There are places we're going to have to stand out. Don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. There is a place for you to stand out, just like Jesus did. And we're going we're gonna to get the same response that Jesus got. Some will love. 1 Corinthians 2, we are the smell of life. And some will hate. 1 Corinthians 2, to some we are the smell of death. But we carry the aroma of the place from which we've been born and the place that we uh, represent on this earth. And it's the aroma of heaven. Whatever it takes. This one, I urge you, ask the Holy Spirit, Lord, where do I need this week to resolve to stand out? Where, where am I meant to be different? Let's pray. The ministry team could come forward. Stand here in front, Lynn, if you could play. There's one other thing I want to add before I pray. What makes believers different is that they have the spirit of their creator within them. They've been born again. And you, I've said that a few times this morning. I just realized there may be people here. You think, I don't even, I don't understand what you mean by born again. God created humanity, all of us, every single one of us. And every single one of us in some way, shape or form has has uh, sinned against God. We've fallen short of the perfect mark of God's perfection. The Bible calls it sin. And every single one of us has done that. In Romans, it says that the wages of sin, what we earn from our sin is death. 
but that the free gift of God is, is, is righteousness through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus came to earth. He, he left the culture of heaven, but brought the culture of heaven to earth and said, this is what love looks like. And he walked in obedience and in love and compassion. He stretched his arms out on the cross. And he said, this, my blood shed is for you. The invitation to anyone who hears that message of good news is to exchange their sin, exchange your sin for Jesus' righteousness. And that can, that can be, that's your invitation today. So if you don't understand what it means to have a relationship with God through Jesus, but you know you want to be known by God and to be in relationship with God, then my invitation to you is to come forward this morning. And let someone here on the team pray for you. Let me pray for you. Let us introduce you to your creator. The one who made you, who lived, died for you, and rose again on your behalf. Let's pray. Yeah. healing um, for if you have been um, uh, brought in by a drug and, and you realize this has become a drug to me and, and it's an abuse of a, of a substance and anything that's, that's making it so that you can't um, be fully present to the Lord um, that's causing you to be shut off from people and in your life. Um, I just think there's grace today to be free. So come up and um, ask somebody up here to to pray. You guys have anything else? Okay, we're going to pray. Um, we've gone a little longer than usual, so if you do have children back in children's ministry, um, you know, go, go and get them. Bring them back in, and we can pray for them too. If you want someone to pray for you, come on forward. Lord, thank you that you're present here. You're moving. The Holy Spirit, you're active among us. So we open ourselves to you. Speak to us, Lord. Reveal yourself to us. Pour out the Spirit of God upon us that we would walk as holy representatives of another culture, the culture of heaven, so that Jesus gets all the glory. We pray in his name. Amen.